hey, wouldn't it be fun if we replaced the Constitution of the United States with a different one? I mean, I personally would love a new Constitution of the United States that involved telling every single American that they are constitutionally required to take care of their bodies, and also establishing a debt jubilee for absolutely everyone, just like in the Old Testament. If we can change the fundamental rules by which the country is run, why then we can change the face of the country, can't we? Hmm. Now... What if we did that for the church, though? Would that be good or bad? Hmm. Well, as a Lutheran, I would tell you that if I changed the constitution of the church, that is, the word of God, or changed the basis by which the church is operated, I'd be in some pretty hot water. Because in theory, the constitution of the United States is a piece of paper that everybody in the country is supposed to agree is binding. And for those who don't agree, well, you know, you have the right to vote on various issues, and if people get together enough, they can change it. That's fine. But we worship, as Christians, an unchanging, all-powerful, jealous God. So if I looked at God's way of doing things and said, no, that's not for me, (laughs) no thanks, I'm going to change all the presuppositions and the foundation of the faith so that we're resting on something different, I'm pretty sure God would squish me. And everybody should squish me. All my legacy, all my writings, everything. Right? Or I end up being a very famous theologian who's widely respected by quote-unquote, modern Christians everywhere in every mainstream denomination. Yeah, let's get into that today for our modernist systematic theology evaluation on Paul Tillich. Moving on to his introduction, section 10, we get into the norm of systematic theology. Now, what is a norm? I could tell you that the Bible is the norming norm of the faith. This is how we operate. This is how we run things. This is what we are supposed to go to as the foundation for our faith. The scriptures, the word of God, is the norming norm. Let's see if um, if Mr. Tillich defines it the same way. The discussion of the sources and of the medium of systematic theology has left a decisive question unanswered. The question of their criterion to which the sources, as well as the mediating experience, must be subjected. The necessity of such a criterion is obvious in view of the breadth and variety of the material, in view of the indefiniteness of the mediating function of experience. Sources and medium can produce a theological system only if their use is guided by a norm. Now, before we wonder what is Paul Tillich's norm, he's going to do a brief survey of denominations from which we get the idea of what a norm is to him. What is the foundation, the criterion for 
everything in your theology. Again, as a Lutheran, in agreement with uh, Mueller, with Pieper, with Luther, with so many other Lutheran theologians out there, I'm going to agree that the norming norm of our faith is the Word of God. But that's not what Tillich does. Instead, as we look at his little brief survey of church history and denominations, it's going to go more into a brief phrase, a series of buzzwords that are strapped together to form a thesis statement for what you can say this denomination is stereotypically about. Let's get into this. The question of the norm of Christian doctrine arose very early in the history of the church. It received a material and a formal answer. On the material side, the church created a creed which with the baptismal confession to Jesus as the Christ at its center was supposed to contain the doctrinal norm. On the formal side, the church established a hierarchy of authorities, bishops, councils, the popes, who were supposed to safeguard the norm against heretical distortions. Okay, he brings up formal and Material. This is a distinction that the church has made for a while now. Your formal principle or your formal norm is that which informs all of your doctrine. The formal norm is like sola scriptura. We follow the norm of Holy Scripture. But then there is the material norm. What is this all about? What does it lead to? So some Lutheran groups have said that their material thesis is, well, the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. After all, if you take Sola Scriptura seriously, you read Revelation 19.10, in which an angel informs St. John that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophets. And since all scripture is speaking on behalf of God, to us. Therefore, its big central thesis statement is the gospel. However, given that, I don't like the formal and material principles argument that we have to have one and the other. I really do believe that if your material principle is the witness of scripture, then you just wrap everything up into the overarching principle of sola scriptura period. The gospel is going to be the focus, absolutely. But that's because we have a formal principle that tells us that. So it's a distinction without a difference, and you can't get a material principle like the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ without the Bible bearing witness to that in every page. But Mr. Tillich here is a modernist theologian, so he says, <laughs> no, 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 we need to pay attention to this. What's the basis for what you're saying, and what is the big buzzword thesis statement of what you're saying? And at the early church, of course, that's bishops, councils, the pope. That's their formal principle, I guess. Capital T, tradition. And then the material principle being the creeds. Okay, he's wrapping up most of early church history in one nice little package according to the theory of formal and material principles. 
uh, getting into what you might call meta-theology, how we organize and structure theology itself. But he keeps going. In the Catholic churches, Roman, Greek, Anglican, the second answer became so predominant that the need for a material norm disappeared. Here, Christian doctrine is what the church declares it to be through its official authorities. And every Roman Catholic listening to this ought to be offended at hearing that. That you guys, you care so much about your structures and your popes and your bishops and your councils that what you say doesn't really matter. It's who says it that makes it important for the church. <laughs> and nobody can actually figure out what they really truly believe. Now, I might feel a little bit of sympathy with Tillich, given how labyrinthine Roman and Greek theology is, how hard it is to pin a lot of it down. But that's the problem. He's not going to replace it with something that's any less complicated, and absolutely he believes that he is this mostly infallible authority over this. It's really silly for him to claim that the Roman and Greek churches fell into this death spiral of authority when here he is claiming that he's the authority on stuff and you should believe him when he gives you his existentialist philosophy pitches or else you're a demon. Remember, this is recording number six now, where we've looked at Paul Tillich's central messages as he prepares everybody to go through his systematic theology and what is he really saying throughout these pages, these 47 pages that we have read thus far? The church needs to get with the times. It needs to give up orthodoxy. Stop thinking it has the truth and start seeking the truth. And in the meantime, believe everything Paul Tillich is saying and make the necessary changes so that the church retreats from any sort of impact on the world and becomes a wonderful white-collar profession where you are respectable in the eyes of the world. With all of your theology, of course, listening to your culture and your experiences over and above the word of God. He's not in a position to condemn Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy whatsoever. But I digress. Let's see what he has to say about Protestantism. The question of the norm, again, became crucial in Protestantism as soon as the ecclesiastical authorities lost their standing. A formal norm and a material norm were established, not by intentional choice, but as in the beginnings of Christianity, by the demands of the situation. Oh, really? Now remember, the situation... The cultural zeitgeist that Mr. Tillich keeps bringing up in this beginning here, the situation demands all, and therefore Christian doctrine changes and manifests differently according to that situation, you see. Now, that's a little bit extra support in his mind for how much he wants to change Christian doctrine. Remember, the situation changes, the church should change along with it and say different things along with it. <laughs> Get with the times. He's claiming that the reformers had no choice. In fact, it was not by intentional choice at all, but by the demands of the culture. Because you see, the ecclesiastical authorities just 
somehow mysteriously lost their standing, I guess in the eyes of the people. Which, no, they didn't. The church was basically all-powerful in its day until Luther nailed those theses to the Wittenberg door. Duh. The church had a ton of authority, and even after the Protestant Reformation was capped off, guess what? The Roman Catholic Church still had tons and tons and tons of authority. I don't get what he's saying here. Is he just making this up? <laughs> the Pope wakes up one day and goes, And my servants, my priests, I've lost my authority. Go tell the Germans. Go tell them right now. They have to become a Sola Scriptura Lutherans. Find that monk out there. Tell him to start a reformation. We're going to pretend to be angry now. Because of the situation, it's changed. No! Nothing like that happened. But we shouldn't be surprised at Mr. Tillich either making stuff up, fudging the truth, or outright lying, or appropriating historical figures to suit his message. He did this with Schleiermacher. He's done this with the orthodox, small o, orthodox theologians contemporary to himself, whom he claimed were a bunch of scaredy, cat, fuddy-duddy demons. This is a man for whom truth seems to be what is convenient, not what is, you know, in accord with reality. Let's keep going here and see what else he has to say about Protestantism. Luther broke through the Roman system in the power of the material norm, which following Paul he called justification through faith, and with the authority of the biblical, especially the Pauline message. Justification and Bible in mutual interdependence were the norms of the Lutheran Reformation. Well, by golly, maybe that's a, a little accurate there. Yes, Mr. Luther, Dr. Luther, to you, Mr. Tillich, he did say that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, or sola fide, is the doctrine by which the church either stands or falls. Uh, presumably because if you deny it, you're not really part of the church anymore. You're denying God's word. And yeah, it's all based on sola scriptura. Again, I believe the formal and material distinctions are... It's a distinction without a difference, honestly, because if you are going to be a sola scriptura Lutheran, you are going to, by definition, believe in the material principle that is the gospel, which includes sola fide. But, hmm, our Reformed friends are going to get a little angry hearing this. In Calvinism, justification was more and more replaced by predestination, in the mutuality of the material and the formal norms was weakened by a more literalistic understanding of biblical authority. But the problem and the line of solution were the same. What? I will risk scandal here and say that the Reformed, or the Calvinist, theologians out there have always had to wrestle with what the scripture says. I just got into a very long discussion with a Calvinist about 1 John 2, 2. 
in which St. John says that our Lord Christ is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also the sins of the entire world, for a denomination that says they believe in sola scriptura and says that he spent a lot of time arguing with that verse and putting all of his chips into the word world being indefinite and therefore he doesn't have to really listen to it. <laughs> Calvinists wrestle with the scripture a lot more than Lutherans do because at the very least they are trying to take the Bible seriously. The Lutherans just kind of automatically do because of our plain literal hermeneutic and common sense hermeneutics. If the Bible says it, it is true. With Calvinists, because they have an overarching doctrine, that's going to take precedence in a lot of situations and they will interpret the scriptures from there. I fail to see where it is literal, but I digress. I've made my Calvinist friends angry. Whoops. Anyway, when we go to the Greek church, by which we mean all of Eastern Orthodoxy, what's the formal and material principles there? Well, here, Mr. Tillich is talking about the implicit principles. Again, when he says norm, what he means is the principle or foundation for the entirety of that denomination. So he says, well, the norm for the early Greek church was the liberation of finite man from death and error by the incarnation of immortal life and the eternal truth. For the Roman Church, it was salvation from guilt and disruption by the actual and sacramental sacrifice of the God-man. For modern Protestantism, it was the picture of the synoptic Jesus representing the personal and social ideal of human existence. And for recent Protestantism, it has been the prophetic message of the kingdom of God in the Old and New Testaments. These symbols were the unconscious or conscious criteria for the way in which systematic theology dealt with its sources and judged the mediating experience of the theologian. <clears throat> what? <laughs> I think what he's getting at is that the largest separation and material principle between the Orthodox and Roman Catholicism was an atonement theory. The Eastern Orthodox do tend to emphasize quote-unquote Christus Victor, while under Abelard and other uh, Roman Catholic theologians, the idea is uh, satisfaction theory. Protestantism, if you look at our atonement theory as Lutherans, we believe in penal substitutionary atonement. The Bible says Jesus died for your sins. The book of Colossians says that Jesus paid the debt that you cannot pay. He nailed it to the cross. Okay, he took my punishment on my behalf so that I may be saved. Penal Substitutionary Atonement 101, why? Because our formal principle is sola scriptura. Uh, but modern Protestantism, and it's a little bit of a mask-off thing, he says that it's about the picture of the synoptic Jesus representing a personal and social ideal of human existence. Ah, example theory! Really, Mr. Tillich? Now, you say that's modern Protestantism. Does that mean that, um, that that's what you believe? 
Uh, because that's actually an old heresy called Socinianism. The Socinians believed that, well, uh, Jesus was just some dude, but he was a really cool dude that when he died on the cross and throughout his life, he gave us a really great example so that we could learn to obey God's law. And Socinianism is a manifestation of the old Ebionite heresy, which was a Judaizing heresy, which again claimed that Christ was merely a man, but a great example. It is all a branch of the Judaizing heresy. And for Tillich here to admit that that's the center, the norm of modern Protestantism, basically Socinianism, basically Ebionitism, which is an offshoot of the Judaizing heresy, is quite the admission. Where is he then, as a big hat theologian, condemning all of his modernist friends for being outright heretics? Hmm. Well, I guess if, uh, if, if he doesn't want to start that kind of conflict, I get it. The situation calls for him to condemn, you know, Bible-believing Christians, not Ebionite slash Socinian heretics. Uh, of course not. He'll never condemn a heretic, right? Anyway, and then he says that, of course, recent Protestantism, that is, the Bible believers in America that he came into contact with, he summarizes that, as uh, the prophetic message of the kingdom of God in the Old and New Testaments, probably a reference to dispensationalism. I just find it amusing that sometimes Mr. Tillich here blinds you with science. He has hyper-distinct, hyper-detailed language in which, you know, you gotta spend a lot of time to really understand what he's saying, and you're going to miss it if you hear it read out loud to you without any explanations. But other times he speaks so vaguely that nobody can say, hey, wait a minute, bucko, you're misrepresenting my views. Oh no, he's just going to lump everything into Protestantism so you can say, uh, that's not me, instead of, wow, you're lying about these particular theologians. Isn't that interesting, Mr. Tillich? He's a master at manipulation. We talked about this last time, where everything is Stockholm Syndrome. Every liberal pastor, every liberal theologian that you read from or hear from in the United States today has probably been brain broken by mental abuse at the seminaries, at the Bible colleges, where consistent manipulative language like this harms their faith actively and tries to mold them into worldly doctrine. But I digress. Now, in case anybody should say, that's not me, or what about this church? What about that denomination? Your summaries are way too uninformed. What are you doing? Ah, he has an in before. The norms of systematic theology, which have been effective in church history did not exclude each other in content. They excluded each other in emphasis. The norm to be stated below is different in emphasis from that of the reformers and from that of modern liberal theology, but it claims to preserve the same substance and to bring it out in a form more adequate to the present situation and to the biblical source. What is Mr. Tillich saying? He's saying, yeah, well, you know, everybody's more or less in agreement on all their doctrine. 
It's really just about what you're emphasizing. Duh. The, the Greek churches don't really deny penal substitutionary atonement. They just prefer to hyper-emphasize Christus Victor to the point where you get things like the Jerusalem Synod where they're anathematizing people left and right. <laughs> it's not that they're denying it. It's just that they, they emphasize it so much that they damn other people. Or those Protestants with uh, Sola Scriptura and with Sola Fide, you know, they're not denying the authority of the Council of Trent and the bishops and the popes and everything. They're just so de-emphasizing them that we don't listen to a single thing they say. Hmm. And Mr. Tillich here, he's, he's ready to give you his panacea, his medicine. Oh, we need a new norm, even different from modern liberal theology. He's no Sassinian. Oh no, he's going to be a new kind of heretic. Let's see what his proposed norm is. Well, the norm has to fit the situation first. Before we can establish a new norm, we have to find out what the current situation is so we can change all of our doctrine and presentation and quote-unquote emphasis. What is the situation today, Mr. Tillich? It is not an exaggeration to say that today man experiences his present situation in terms of disruption, conflict, self-destruction, meaninglessness, and despair in all realms of life. This experience is expressed in the arts and in literature, conceptualized in existential philosophy, actualized in political cleavages of all kinds, and analyzed in the psychology of the unconscious. It has given theology a new understanding of the demonic, tragic structures of individual and social life. Okay, so that's the situation. Men stopped believing in God, and it led them to despair. And now Mr. Tillich, instead of saying, let's evangelize, let's get people into the churches, let's go to them and say, God is the answer. You're feeling all this meaninglessness because you embraced meaninglessness. You don't have to live that way. Christ died for you. Let him wash you clean in the waters of your baptism, taking away your original sin and making you whole in Christ. Everything you were supposed to be. No, Mr. Tillich says instead of that, instead of a back to the Bible movement or any sort of heavy evangelism, we just need to change everything about the Christian faith to make these people comfortable. If you embraced meaninglessness and you're feeling bad because of it, let me drop everything in the Christian faith and make it about you. Hence, he says... The material norm of systematic theology used in the present system and considered the most adequate to the present apologetic situation is the new being in Jesus the Christ. If this is combined with the critical principle of all theology, one can say that the material norm of Systematic theology today is the new being in Jesus as the Christ as our ultimate concern. 
This norm is the criterion for the use of all the sources of systematic theology. Now I know what you're thinking, but wait, pastor. The Bible does say if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're correct. That's not what Mr. Tillich is getting on here. He is talking about an existential new being. He is talking about people having a therapeutic renewal, which makes them feel good about themselves, rather than actual regeneration in Christ. He's not talking about our sins being forgiven. He's not talking about the guilt incurred that is stripped away as we drown our old Adam in our remembrance of baptism. Oh, no, 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 no. Mr. Tillich is talking about a therapeutic renewal that has its basis in existential philosophy, thereby allowing you to sin willy-nilly but not really feel bad about it anymore because, after all, you're in Jesus. It is textbook antinomianism. Have you ever seen a pastor claim that drag is holy? Well, he gets that idea from Mr. Paul Tillich. Because according to the situation, he wants to tell people in degenerate sin that they are actually holy and good in Jesus Christ. Oh yes, he gave the church's permission to say this. Now, we might ask though, well that's his material principle, what about his formal principle? Ah, you're right. The formal principle of Lutheranism is sola scriptura. If the Bible says it, we believe it. And if we don't understand it, we keep reading the Bible until we do. And if we still don't understand it, we keep reading until we keep getting closer to the truth. Over and over and over again, that is Lutheran theology in a nutshell. What does the Bible say? But Mr. Tillich here doesn't like that very much. He spends a page and a half arguing with that concept and arguing with church fathers and councils because, after all, there's some sort of possibility those guys were in error. And he argues with the Bible because there's no way that you could possibly ever read it objectively. So he gives us a new formal principle which allows him to say whatever on earth he wants. Since the norm of systematic theology is the result of an encounter of the church with the biblical message. It can be called a product of the collective experience of the church. But such an expression is dangerously ambiguous. It can be understood to mean that the collective experience produces the content of the norm. However, the content of the norm is the biblical message. Collective, as well as individual experiences, are the mediums through which the message is received, colored, and interpreted. The norm grows within the medium of experience, but it is at the same time the criterion of any experience. The norm judges the medium in which it grows. It judges the weak, interrupted, distorted character of all religious experience, although it is only through this feeble medium that a norm can come into existence at all. I'm going to go ahead and give a name 
to that because he doesn't really name his formal principle. He has his material principle, the new being in Jesus as the Christ, quote unquote, but he doesn't give a name to his formal principle. Let's give a name to it. Circular reasoning. There you go. He says that the formal principle comes from the encounter between the church and the Bible. That's it. That's what produces your formal principle by which you judge everything else. Now, that has a danger of being ambiguous, but that's why the formal principle judges all personal religious experience, which then goes and gets absorbed into the formal principle which then continues to judge weak, flimsy human experience, thus producing doctrine or something. He goes round and round here, and then he says, oh, we're not being ambiguous, and then he gives you a very, very, very ambiguous process by which this happens. It's circular, and it is meaningless. Maybe a different, better name here is whatever Paul Tillich says-ism. Because ultimately, with a definition like this, he gets to say that, oh, yes, my encounter with the biblical witness means I get to make this systematic doctrine. Because I'm so smart, you see. And next week, we will look at the rational basis for it as he tries to defend his smarty pants way of looking at it. My goodness, this is so tiresome. Anyway, catch all next week for it. Yes, we will eventually get to his actual theology. No, it's not worth a warm bucket of spit or a piece of dog poop, but we will get there. Catch all next week. Amen and amen.